Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Devin. Uh, I've been coming to Lake Avenue really my whole life. Uh, I just graduated high school recently, and I'm going to be going to Cal Lutheran next year studying uh, political science. And thank you so much. And this is my brother, and he's also here. Um, <laughs> our scripture reading from today uh, is from Psalm 63. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. God, you are my God. I seek you with all my heart. With all my strength, I thirst for you. In this dry desert where there isn't any water, I have seen you in the sanctuary. There I have seen your power and your glory. Your love is better than life, so I will bring glory to you with my lips. I will praise you as long as I live. I will call on your name when I lift up my hands in prayer. I will be satisfied as if I had eaten the best food there is and I will sing praise to you with my mouth. As I lie on my bed, I remember you. I think of you all night long because you have helped me. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I hold on tightly. Your powerful right hand takes good care of me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down into the grave. They will be killed by swords. They will become food for wild dogs, but the king will be filled with joy because of what God has done. All those who make promises in God's name will rejoice, but the mouths of liars will be shut. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Devin, and that other guy that you <laughs> brought with. Kendall, You're, they're both heading back to the university. Just come every, every week and read scripture for us. We'll be, we, we would like that. I've got to tell you this morning about this title that I have for you that I'm calling The Longing for Transcendence. I just imagine that in a series of messages about modern longings, you might think there are a few people that you know in this modern world who would say that one of the things they long for is transcendence. I mean, I want you to think about your own longings. Does the word transcendence pop into your head when I, when I ask that? Or, or do things like this, uh, Russell Matisich said at the car show, the thing he longs for is a new Porsche. I don't know if Jeff's gonna get one of those. You might think all sorts of other things, winning the lottery, uh, getting a good health report, uh, the Dodgers this year winning the World Series. But the word transcendence, I don't think that, probably was one of the first things that popped into your mind. So I, I've, I've got some work to do to convince you that deep inside every modern person, every human being, there really is a deep, deep down longing for transcendence. By transcendence, this is what I mean. The, the existence of a reality that goes beyond the material, natural realities of this world. Tra transcendence refers to a whole view of our world that believes that this material world with its natural causes and all of its processes, that's not all there is. That the one who believes in transcendence believes that there is a reality that really is a part of everything that's real that is transcendent. So, uh, back when John Naisbitt wrote his first Megatrends book, anybody remember that book? It was number one bestseller on the New York Times for two years. 
He wrote of the, a growing influence uh, in the world, a worldview among many scientists, and he said some in technology that seeks to explain everything in our world just by natural causes. Naisbet predicted as one of his megatrends that people would react against that kind of mechanical view of this world. And so he said one of the trends that he thinks we should expect is that people in the future will become more and more interested in the supernatural, in the spiritual, not less. More and more religious, not less. That doesn't mean they'll go to church, but there'll be this longing for spirituality. And it really, I already had seen uh, the truth of some of Naisbeth's um, predictions when I lived in Germany in the 1970s because everybody was already saying that Europe had become a fully secular society, that nobody there that I would meet when I lived in Germany would be interested in any kind of religion, but I'm telling you that was not true. Uh, during even those years, the growth of religions like New Age and even the occult, even among the most highly educated in Europe, I'll tell you, it was, it, it was remarkable. So there was a Stanford, socio, uh, Stanford University sociologist, a man named Theodore Rozak. He wrote a book a number of years ago, ago called Where the Wasteland Ends. Now, Rozak was not a churchgoer, but he said that what he saw in his own university, that this tendency among some in the scientific community to deny the supernatural and to reduce everything to natural components, he said that is going to prove not to be satisfying to the kinds of questions that human beings ask about life. There was one phrase that I wrote down because I just thought it was just so thoughtful. He said, there is an irreducible intuition in human beings that, that reality is awesomely vast. He said that people intuit that there is, of course, a natural world, but he also said that we intuit that there are supernatural realities. And, and he insisted this, that if you try to eradicate or, or, or suppress your search for something greater in this world than just yourself, it's going to be like trying to put a cork in Old Faithful. I'm sure you know that if you could put a big enough cork in Old Faithful, that it wouldn't keep Old Faithful from erupting. No, it would, it would just break out in all sorts of crazy ways and crazy places. Now, I, I became the most convinced of what I want to talk to you about, this um, longing for transcendence, when I was studying in Cambridge, England, and I heard a sermon on Psalm 63. Yeah, the sermon <laughs> that you guys read. Well, this are preached by all people by a scientist. He was a chemist uh, who had come to faith uh, later in his life and, and had sensed God's call to ministry. So he loved being a scientist because he loved studying the material world and all of its natural processes. But he had come to believe that good science acknowledges that all reality cannot be explained in terms of natural things and natural processes alone. Deep, deep down in his heart, he knew there had to be someone and someone, something greater than just this natural world. So what he was saying, he said, I love creation, but I also wanted to get to know my creator. 
And, and the title of his sermon back a long time ago was The Search for Transcendence. So I just stole it today, just to let you know. Now, I'm sure you know we have a number of, of uh, wonderful scientists in our church, too. And they, the places where they serve always kind of blows me away. One of them is one of the main leaders in our prayer ministries. Uh, and is on our ministry council, and that's Dr. Steve Cunningham. And another one, and you may not always know this, is one of our main worship leaders, Dr. Lauren White. When I tell a lot of my uh, friends uh, about this, I, I find that they're quite surprised. Yeah, Lauren, why don't you come on up? In fact, they wonder if these people are real scientists because they wonder how can a person be a devoted scientist and love the material world, but also be a devoted follower of Jesus and believe in uh, a, a transcendent world. So I've, I've asked Lauren, Lauren, thank you for coming up. Come on up and join me here to come and talk with me about this. And I thought the first thing we needed to do is to establish whether you are a real scientist or not. <laughs> Credibility, so, uh, I get okay. it. <laughs> so, Lauren, what have you studied? What kind of jobs have you had? Tell us a little bit. Sure. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry from Texas A&M. Whoop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> after that, I jumped into the field of astrobiology and got hired straight out of undergrad at Johnson Space Center working for NASA. And I studied Martian meteorites looking for evidence of fossilized life on Mars. And I actually got to work on the space shuttle program for a little while, which was pretty cool. Um, went to graduate school at UC Santa Barbara, did a PhD in chemistry. Loved astrobiology, so I studied um, under a uh, professor at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for NASA. And the project was Origin of Life from Hydrothermal Vents. Um, I finished that project, and JPL hired me full time. I jumped into engineering. I wanted to work on flight projects, so I've worked for about five years, five and a half years as a systems engineer. Um, two projects launched and are on the space station operating, which is pretty fun. And uh, the next one that I'm working on is the Mars 2020 rover that's launching next year. All right, think about this. <laughs> so, so Lauren, you are a chemist, you're an astrobiologist, you're an engineer, or as I always call you, a cool rocket scientist. <laughs> but at the same time, you write these uh, worship songs about Jesus, and you lead us in worshiping God. How do you, how do you put this, this science and, and your worship and your music, in, how do you put that together? Well, engineers don't socialize very well, so I come here to, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll do that in a minute. Uh, you know, I didn't put that together. God did. Um, he gave me the ability to do music and a passion for that. He gave me the ability to do science and a, a passion for that too. And so I just do what he calls me to do and use the gifts he gave me. I believe all of us are uniquely gifted and that when we use those gifts and we use those talents, for me, it makes me feel nearer and closer and more alive in Christ because I'm serving him the way he intended me to. Uh, so I, I, yes, I agree. I, I spoke about this uh, chemist pastor who loved being a scientist before he became a Christian, but then after he had met his creator through faith in Jesus, he loved being a scientist even more. Uh, do, do you think that your relationship with your maker even enhances your, your work as a scientist? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I studied these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. 
Um, before we even discovered those in the 70s, we didn't even know life could exist down there. And there's these very unique environments that only these types of microbial life can exist in. And I, I often, during the work, wondered, how did God create that? Did he do it using the chemistry that I'm testing? And will he reveal that to us someday? I didn't have to take some kind of a leap with that work and suddenly think there's not a God in all of that. In fact, it, it, it reaffirms my faith to see the unique environment and how life exists in all of these crazy corners of, of our planet. All right, now we're coming to the, the, the big part. Lauren, I want you to envision being a scientist without any connection to God. So do you think that would change anything? Uh, do you think you would have any kind of longing for transcendence? If, if you say no, this will be a short sermon. So, <clears throat> <laughs> I, everything would change. Everything would change. Um, the analogy that comes to mind is, you know, in, in engineering we use calibration targets for a lot of our imagers. They have a known resolution and a known distance, and we can use our cameras to calibrate against those. Uh, in science, we use calibration curves. We uh, measure a known substance of a known quantity, and then we compare some unknown substance against that. It's very simple. It's a truth. <laughs> it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. <laughs> Um, but that to pick, sorry, I'm a nerd, um, but it's a truth. We always compare everything we do against some kind of truth. And that's what God is in my life and in my work. He's the truth that I compare myself, I recalibrate against every time. And if I'm going to be honest, um, you know, my life without God would be ruled by pride and insecurity. And I know those things lead to bitterness and emptiness. And um, that's a, it's, it's really amazing to, to think about not having God to, to calibrate against. And what I see most of all in my workplace is people who throw their entire lives, their whole identity into this one thing. And I don't, I don't understand how you could survive when that breaks down. In, for example, one flight project I worked on got canceled twice in three years. <laughs> if my entire identity was wrapped up in that job, I would be devastated. But instead, my identity has to be found in Christ. It has to be found in God, in Jesus. And when things get overwhelming or I start to get too prideful, then I can go back and recalibrate against the truth of God's word that I am his child, that my identity is found in him, that he's good, that he's trustworthy, and that when things fall apart, I can wait, wait, <laughs> as you've been telling us in the last couple of weeks, for further direction from him. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. <laughs> so in, in just the moments that we have left in our service, what I want to do is to have you open up to Psalm 63 and take you to David, King David, who wrote this, his longing for transcendence that's there in that psalm. It's a Bible passage, I'll tell you, that has so much shaped my ministry here and has affected my witness to Jesus enormously. What I want us to do is just walk quickly, uh, kind of envision yourself walking through this desert that uh, David was in when he wrote this psalm. And there really are three clear phases uh, of this. And then I'm gonna tell you the two reasons why I've taken this uh, time to, 
to talk to you about this and why it's so important to me. So let's think about journeying through that desert. The first phase they had to do was identify the greatest need that he had. Uh, Lauren, you've helped us to do this. The greatest need that he had, and it came in verse one. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in this dry and parched land where there is no water. So I want, you're putting yourself into King David's shoes here. He wasn't in that desert by choice. This wasn't like you and me running out here to Palm Desert for a vacation. That's what it wasn't doing. No, he was hiding in that desert place with his life in danger. Now, um, this may have been the time when his son Absalom tried to steal the kingdom from King David. If so, just think about it. He must have had many needs in that desert that day. They would have been the basic physical needs. I mean, he, he was homeless. He needed lodging. I mean, he didn't have any water. He didn't have any food. He would have had his occupational needs. He'd lost his job. Would he ever be king again? Where do you go from there? He, he had relational needs. His family was broken. His closest friends, friends and associates had turned from him. Now, in, in that setting, what would your greatest longing have been in a time like that. So I looked at this and I said, what is, what is the greatest need that David expressed that he had? And you, you heard me when I read it. My whole being longs for you, my God. Even though I'm in this dry and parched land where there's no water. So David was speaking here at this point I'm trying to make to you today that there are both these natural and supernatural realities in our world. I mean, I'll tell you, he understood natural and material needs, didn't he? He said, I'm in a hot, dry, parched desert land, and I'd like to have a glass of water. But at the same time, he was aware of this supernatural, this spiritual, eternal part of him. And as hard as I think it is for many people, maybe even for us, to grasp his deepest longing was for God. It's as if he said, my body, yeah, it, it longs for water, that's for sure, that's real. But my whole being longs for you, my God. So he must have been in my sermon last Sunday from his other poem, Psalm 91, that even if he got water, it would not last. But if he had God, even death could not take God away from him. So let me make an assertion. I want you to think about your own life, and if you agree, the deepest need of your human heart is to know God. To walk with God, to dwell with God. I'm telling you, this is at the heart of the Bible. It starts at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. When things were right, God was, and the word is, dwelt with his people. He walked and talked with him. That's the way life is supposed to be. Then when you come to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, when Jesus comes back again and makes all things new, we read again, especially Revelation 21, 3, if you want to mark that verse. We are going to dwell then again in the unrestricted presence of God. We will see him as he is no longer simply something by faith, but by sight. 
So here we are, gathered at Lake Avenue Church. We're in an in-between time, right? We're between Genesis 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. We are here between paradise on one side and the new creation on the other. But I'm telling you, even in this in-between time, we have been created to live life knowing that there is more than just this physical world. And we've been made to live life knowing that God is dwelling in us and with us. And I'll tell you, if, if you're new to the church, that's what the gospel is about. We experience the presence of God now in our lives when you place your faith in Jesus. If you haven't experienced that, today is the day to, for that to begin because I'll tell you, that's how real life actually is launched, using rocket language there, uh, Lauren. So, do you see what? Jesus has come so that people like us who are alive to the natural world might also be made alive to a whole reality, to God himself. You, you see, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said you have to be born again, not, not just in the norm, natural way, but alive to God himself. The point is that I am just so convinced that all of us who are human, made in the Creator's image, that the main thing you and I have been known, need to know is a relationship to our Creator God. I see, I'm just so convinced that deep, deep down in every human heart is that kind of longing for transcendence. Do you understand the title of the sermon now? <laughs> and that carries us into phase number two, uh, verses two through eight. Uh, I'll just call it zakar. Anybody remember what that word means? My one Hebrew word I've been trying to teach you here for, for, for weeks. Nobody? Zakar, it means to remember. Will you remember this next week? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, here's what he did. He remembered God even when he was in the desert. I have seen you. He said, I've seen you. He was there in the desert, but I saw you in the sanctuary. I, there I beheld your power and your glory. So David, I'm sure you've been there too. He had at times in his life when God seemed to be far away. And it surely it felt like that in the desert. But David knew that God is real, even if he didn't feel it at the moment. How? Because he had experienced God genuinely earlier on. Where had he experienced the reality of God in his life? And you see it in verse 2. It was in his worship with God's people in the sanctuary. When he had gone into the sanctuary, as you are right now, and had been among the people of God, he had personally experienced, and I'll just use some of his words, the power and glory of God. So when he was out there in that dry and barren place on his own, he remembered Zakar. He remembered back to his worship. And then the things he remembered were things like this. Verse 3, oh man, I might die out here, but God's love is better than life. And he proclaimed in verse 4, I sang back then, and right now I've got to sing a song of praise, even if I have to do it alone right now without my, my family. And he said in verse 5, I can be satisfied here with God's presence as with the richest of foods, is what he said. And as a king, I'm telling you, he had experienced what that was. And even if he had none of that right then, 
He knew that the provider is someone who had not left him. So that as you read through in verse 6 and following, in the very worst time of his life, he remembered what he had experienced about God when he had worshipped together in the sanctuary with his family of faith. So that he'd remember it in the day and he also would say at nighttime, when I'm on my bed and I can't even sleep because of all that's going wrong. He remembered that God is real. He remembered that God still loved him. He remembered that God is present. He remembered what I so often in these 12 years have have declared to you. There is no God-forsaken place in this universe. Wherever you go, God is there. And what I've tried to proclaim to you over and over again, there is no God-forsaken person in this universe. No matter how far you have walked away from him, if you turn back, he will be there. Thank you, Lord. He knew that the God that he had met in the sanctuary was right there in that desert. So I love verse 8. He said, I I cling to you. (laughs) This is hard. I'm going to cling to you, Lord. And I've told you this before, but it just reminds me so much of the first time I took our daughter, Heather, down to Disneyland, and we went into Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. She wanted to go into that thing. I think she was three. And as we were going through, as all these things were popping out at her, she grabbed me. She, I was so tight. I, I thought I'm going to die here from this. So every time something jumped out, she was grabbing me. I was like a, it was like I had an extra appendage. And then when we came out of there, she looked up with a big smile, and she said, we made it, Dad. I said, yeah, we, we. That's what he's talking about here. I cling to you, oh God, in the midst of this difficult time, and we need to do that sometimes, right? I'll tell you, that that point could be a sermon on its own. Jeff, you you can do it when I leave. So I just want to simply ask you this. What do you cling to? When you're in those desert times, and even when sometimes it feels like God is far away, I'll tell you when you've experienced him here, when you take time in those times, when you go out into the workplace or whatever happens, and you remember, you'll know that here I can cling to you and you will never leave me. Which brings me to the third phase, then living today with the end in mind. So we sometimes look forward to that Revelation 21 and 22, and he does. I know this, that all those who make promises or swear or live in your name and God's name, there's going to come a time you will rejoice. But the mouths of liars, they will be shut. David knew that his time in that desert would not last forever. So if you're going through one of those tough times, It will not last forever. Be faithful to God in those places, and you will rejoice. So it's clear when you read this that David was in the desert because there were enemies, even those he thought were close to him, who were lying about him and were seeking to kill him. I'm sure that at the time, the enemies seemed to be strong, and don't you think David would have felt so weak? But he knew this, that if you leave God out of your life, that kind of strength will not last because he knew who God is. He worshiped God. God is powerful. He'll do what he says he's going to do. He is just. He'll make sure evil is punished and goodness is rewarded and faithfulness is rewarded. I'll talk about this next week, so you have to come back again. See, I'm trying to keep 
having you come back. But if you look at verses nine through 11, he just kept looking at God's promise to bring about what is right, justice. He knew what God had promised and he was able to. Wait, wait. Must have been hard, don't you think? Out in the desert? When you know God as he had, when you have experienced him in the sanctuary, you will find hope even in the midst of enemies. When you meet God and learn to know what he is like, it will keep you going in the deserts of your life until God finishes his work and he makes all things new. I, I wanted to preach that to you. Now, I just want you to know this too. This, David's experience can be yours. Same God, right? David's experience can be yours. So there are two reasons why as I was praying about, and Jeff, you challenged me, think through the things you most want to say to us. <laughs> as I thought about that, why I came to this, this psalm, two things. Well, there really are three. So first, if you've never even come to, to life to God, if you've not been born again through faith in Jesus, this is the time to begin. Everything else I say to you will just seem so distant the rest of us always say, yeah, yeah, we can apply this. So that's the first thing I want to say. This is the day that you make sure you get your life right with God by placing your faith in Jesus. But then the other two things. First, for us as Christians. I so much want you here at Lake to learn to meet God when you come into this sanctuary. I want you to have a way of life in which you meet him every time you come and you worship God together with us, with your church family. David was able to remember who God is and what God is like because he had these ongoing deep and genuine experiences with God in his worship gatherings together with his church family in the sanctuary. His language is so good. He said it was there as we did these things that I beheld the power and glory of God. It was there that I learned that, that God, you love me and that your love is better than life itself. He had learned even to know how to sing. I don't know if he had a good voice at all, but he learned to sing praise to God because he had been a faithful worshiper in the good times of his life. He was able to zakar, to remember who God is, even when he was under attack in that desert. So I've been asking how, what role do we have as pastors and church leaders to make it possible for you always when you come into the sanctuary truly to worship with us at Lake. And I, I do feel we have some responsibilities. And the main one, we've, we've got to make sure we have God at the center of these worship services. Uh, I'm not sure that every church feels that that's what has to be first. We've got to make sure that God is at the center of that. Now, we, we, we can do that the way that David had to do it in his day that when you come together, that's when we sing songs that actually give praise to God. And uh, the ones we select, actually, when you're singing with us, they're going to sing about his love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Sing about his power. Sing about his glory. And the other part is there has to be a time, whether people want it or not, that when you come into this place, we're going to open God's word and see what he has to say to us hear afresh who God is, hear what he says about this world, hear what he says about us, and, and, and we recommit ourselves to him. And we need to do this together as a church family. 
This is one of the mysteries in the Bible. I don't know how to fully explain it. It's the mystery of Christ-centered community, which is what a church should be. You and I, we can meet God on our own. God's given us that ability. Wherever you go, even if your church family isn't there, you can meet him there. But I'll tell you, it's a pretty consistent theme of the Bible that somehow when you gather together with your worshiping family, your own experience of the reality of God will be more genuine and more real. It's what David is writing about here. That's why you need to be here in the summer months and all the time here in the life of our church. Anybody agree with me there? I need to tell the ones who aren't here, right? You say, you go out and preach this to them. The the other part, I mean, Jesus talked about this too in Matthew chapter 18. He said that when two or three of you are gathered together and it's in my name, I am in the midst of them. I've often thought about that. He's in the midst of us when we're alone. But at the same time, our experience of him deepens as we worship together with our brothers and sisters to whom we are committed within that sanctuary. So it's partly our responsibility to make sure that we haven't become an entertainment center, but a place where, where God's name is proclaimed and we're going to sing praise to him. But it's not just the pastor's responsibility to facilitate your experience of God. You have responsibility too. A big part, another whole sermon, a big, big part, one part of your experience of God when you come into this place is that you should come prepared and longing to meet God when you come in here. Many of the Psalms speak about this. They're called the Psalms of Ascent, you know, climbing up. People would gather before the worship service. I don't know if we should do that. We should gather down there at the, at the street and then all march up together from the bottom to the top before they even come into the worship. They would be confessing their sins. They would be expressing, Lord, today I really need to hear you and hear what you have to say. So I just want to somehow encourage you to prepare even before you come into this worship place confessing the, the sins before you even come in here, opening up your heart and mind, telling them you need to meet with him. If you have children, I'll tell you this will change their lives. If you tell them we're going to church today, and the most important thing is I need to meet God afresh, they'll learn why they're even coming into this place. And I'll tell you when the music begins and the, and the songs remind us of the power of God and you begin singing about how deep the love of Jesus is, everything will be changed. O- over the past few months, starting with Vacation Bible School, it was amazing, Jeff, what, what happened. I and, and Jeff, too, have had just a number of people who have started coming back to church after being away for a long time. I always say, oh, wh- why did... Why have you been away, and why did you come back? And so many of them have told me that back often when they were children, sometimes in VBS themselves, they'd experienced something real about God, something good while they were here years ago. They just really longed for that to happen again in their lives, in their children's lives, in their grandchildren's lives. That's what David writes about. I have seen you, God. It was in the sanctuary. It was there that I beheld your power and your glory. I'll just tell you, when you meet God in the sanctuary with your church family, you will be ready to face whatever happens in the deserts of your life. 
So that's one reason why I wanted to preach that I want you to meet him regularly. And, and the second reason I, w- I wanted to preach you is because I, I want Psalm 63 and this matter of the longing for transcendence to have an impact on the way that you seek to witness about people, about your faith in Jesus. Again, I mean, here's my conviction. You've got to think about it. I think that deep in the hearts of all human beings, all, is this longing for transcendence, something bigger than ourselves. I think that is true even of those who are most fervently resistant to any kind of faith or religion. I believe that human beings are made to know God and to live in that knowledge of God with God dwelling in their hearts. This is that experience of God with that famous quote from St. Augustine in which he said in his confessions, you have made us for, for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So all these years, I sort of hold on to that whenever I seek to speak about Jesus even when I sense that those people don't want to hear this reverend at that big church there on, you know, on the 210, they're antagonistic to organized religion or anything, I remind them, they might be, but they've been made for you. I remind myself, I try to have the eyes to see this. God, you made them for yourself, even if, if they're holding you at arm's length right now. This was reconfirmed to me last, last month, Chris and I, um, went back to my hometown of Bluefield, West Virginia for my 50th uh, high school reunion. Uh, Chris is much younger than I am, so just, just mark that down. But as we were there, I think both of us were quite surprised when classmate after classmate after classmate came up and told us that since high school, they had come to faith in Jesus. Um, you got to remember, this was back in the 60s. Anybody remember how rebellious the 60s were with all the drugs? All the, it was all, all a part of our experience back then, too. A number of them would tell, tell me afterwards, and some are tuning in, so I, I better get this right. They told me that my witness to them as a high school student was a part of them coming to faith. I could hardly believe it. The, on one side, because some of them had been so staunchly anti-religious, And I also felt like if I'd said anything, my attempts to give witness to Jesus had been so weak and ineffective. But somehow those frail words must have been used by God because my friends later had come to a place in which this whole message had become real to them. They had sensed that they had a longing for God but sometimes just the frailest of words sort of plants a seed in their hearts. I I want you to learn to see people that way. Uh, Your children or grandchildren who maybe seem to so resistant to anything to deal with faith, people, your colleagues at work, I I want you to long to see that even if at the moment it might even be mocking you deep, deep in their hearts, they were made for more than anything, that anything in this world can ever fill. Learn to see people as those who deep down in their hearts have a place that only God can fill. That that's how God made us all, with a longing for transcendence that only He can satisfy.
Here's the way I want to end the message. I don't know if you have a sheet of paper, if you have your phone and a memo pad there in front of you on the phone. I have two questions for you. Dwayne, maybe it would be good to have the music team start coming up because I think that would help. I just, here you are in the sanctuary with us. Have you learned anything or been reminded of anything about God as you've been here in the sanctuary today? Will you mark that down? Write it down, ask him to help you to remember that. We should probably do this every week, just stop. What have you heard through the music, through the time of prayer, through the opening of God's word about God that might sustain you when you leave this place? Take a moment now and and answer that. And then second, that that other part. Is is there anybody who comes to mind that, that you should speak to Jesus about? You don't have to take them all the way. Just these smallest things, letting them know what Jesus means to you. How that's changing your life. With the honesty that we still have a whole lot of changing to do. (laughs) But planting that seed that I think that if I'm right, that there is a longing in their hearts for transcendence, that God will somehow water until something is born that is alive, alive to him. I hope we're singing a song about God right now. You can fill out those questions as we sing together.